in creation and your amazing work in our lives through Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would daily commit to looking at you and standing in awe of you and praising you and not worshiping the idols in our life, but worshiping you for you are majestic and great. We thank you for this time to hear from your word. We pray, Lord, that we would hold it with the highest honor um, to listen from it and to learn from it and to implement it in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through Pastor Patrick and uh, that you would be glorified in this time. We commit this time in your hands. In your son's precious, holy, and worthy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Ah, I love that last song that we sang. He is king forevermore. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and he is faithful through it all. That's just a great line for what the book of Daniel is all about. And so my question is, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? That kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? And I am sure that Daniel is glad that you're asking that question because he wants to answer that this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. I'm sure we've all had that experience in one way or another, whether it's with a TV show or a movie. Maybe it's your favorite superhero movie, and you're watching, and in the middle of a scene, you just ask the question, how in the world did they do that? And we wonder, we postulate over how it might have been done through special effects, We really don't know until those DVD extras come out, right? And then we can go behind the scenes and we can see how it was actually done. And sometimes it's crazier than we thought it was going to be. Sometimes, you know, there's a a guy hanging off of a plane as it's taking off and all he has is one cable holding him on and you go, wow, that was a real stunt. Sometimes you find out that the scene you were watching that you were so wowed by was actually just one guy in a green room with nothing else around him, and everything was computer-generated and animated and made, and it was all fake. But either way, we all have that moment where we say, so that's how that actually happened. That's how that actually happened. Well, Daniel is going to give us a little behind-the-scenes this morning in such a way that he wants us to walk away from our time in his word saying, oh, that's how it actually happened. That's how it actually happened. But instead of putting this in some DVD extra after you see the whole movie, Daniel is front-loading this at the very beginning of the book because he wants to know God's the hero of it all. He's the one who's doing all of this. He's the main actor, not Daniel. So... Let's read the verses that we'll be covering this morning, which are just verses 1 and 2. Do not worry. We will not be moving that slowly through this book. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to cover all the rest of chapter 1. So we will move quickly through certain portions of it. But this morning, we need to slow down and dive into these first two verses. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Father, I pray this morning that you would take us deep into the realities and the beauty and the glory of your sovereignty 
And that as we look back into the past to see Daniel celebrating your sovereign control, that we would be here in the present celebrating your sovereign control. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you are the same in the way that you work and control and operate behind the scenes in your gracious and amazing and glorious sovereignty. So God, be our guide this morning. Show us yourself. May we see ourselves in light of you. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. When we come to these first two verses in the book of Daniel, we come to really a spotlight on the sovereignty of God. This book is all about the sovereignty of God. One commentator says it this way, the principal theological emphasis in Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh, the God of Israel. At a time when it seemed to all the world that his cause was lost and that the gods of the heathens had triumphed, causing his temple to be burned to the ground, it pleased the Lord strikingly and unmistakably to display his omnipotence. The theme that's running through the whole book is that the fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. That is God's sovereignty on display. And here in these two verses, we really see a historical context in verse 1 and then the theological reality in verse 2. What is God's sovereignty? The Westminster Confession of Faith articulates God's sovereignty this way, quote, God the creator, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, depose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Some of you still might say, oh, that's not helpful. What is sovereignty? How do you define sovereignty? One of my Bible professors used to say, we don't need 50 cent words like sovereignty when you, we, you can use uh, nickel words like control. Right? God's sovereignty just means he's in control of every single molecule in the universe. There are no maverick molecules. Nothing can happen apart from his ordaining, allowing, purposing, willing that it would happen. And that's really the theme of this entire book. In fact, turn to chapter 4, just really quickly. Chapter 4, verse 35. If there is a theme verse in the book of Daniel, I think it's chapter 4, verse 35, which is ironic because it comes from the lips of a pagan, non-Jewish king. This is Nebuchadnezzar who says, all of the inhabitants, this is chapter 4, verse 35, all of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is the one who owns and operates the universe and controls every aspect of what happens. So the question is, what does that look like here in verses 1 through 2? And I want to see just three main aspects in these two verses of the sovereignty of God. I want to see three aspects of God's sovereignty in these short two verses. Number one, God's sovereignty is an active sovereignty. God's sovereignty is an active 
sovereignty, as opposed to a deist sovereignty. Uh, deism, deist the- theology would say that God created everything, made it happen, got it in motion, and then stepped back and just watches everything. So he's sovereign over all things, but not in a personal, active way. Not so, according to the Bible. God's sovereignty is an active sovereignty. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Who is Jehoiakim? Uh, There were 19 kings that ruled over Judah. Remember, we talked last week about the divided kingdom, uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There were 19 kings that reigned in Judah in the south for a period of 345 years in the divided monarchy. Only eight of those 19 kings were good. The rest of them were called evil. And Jehoiakim, the 17th of the 19 kings, is one of the evil ones. Not because of his heritage. He came from a godly line of uh, parents. His dad was Josiah, the godly king who brought reforms back to Judah. And at Josiah's death, Jehoiakim's younger brother, a man by the name of Jehoiahaz, became king. But before he had served even three months in Judah, Pharaoh Necho from Egypt came and dethroned Jehoiahaz and placed his older brother Eliakim on the throne and renamed him Jehoiakim. So Egypt says, we're going to control you and I'm going to show you how much I control you by saying I've given you a new name. You are my puppet. Do my bidding in Israel while I rule and reign from Egypt. He defied God, Jehoiakim did. He burned the scroll of Jeremiah. He hated the prophecy that God gave through Jeremiah to the the, uh, two tribes that were in Judah, and so he burned the book of Jeremiah, and he engaged in idolatry. He was a wicked ruler, and so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. Who is Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar here is the king of Babylon. He He wasn't born as the king. His dad, Nabopolassar, was a Chaldean who became king of Babylon when Assyria, after Assyria had fallen, uh, Nabopolassar came uh, into Babylon and ruled and reigned as king. And Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar, became king after his dad died in September 6th, 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., he was a brilliant military strategist. He was a great builder, a massive architect. All of the buildings that he made were beautiful and massive. He was a statesman par excellence. He was an amazing ruler. And he ruled in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon is the capital city of Babylonia, 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. It's the largest city that existed up until that time. It was 2,200 acres in circumference. It was massive. It was surrounded by two uh, walls, a double-walled system around the city. I just want to read from a historical account of this, uh, this amazing, amazing city. The outer wall was at least 14 miles in circumference. It was a huge wall, 84 feet thick. It was the equivalent of, two, of, of a two-lane road on top of the wall. And that outer wall, not only was it 14 miles in circumference, it was 75 feet high with guard towers positioned every 125 feet. And those guard towers rose above that 75-foot wall another 25 feet. That's just the outer wall. Then there was a space, and then there was the inner wall. And it was just as impressive, if not more so, because it was 55 feet thick and it was higher than the outer wall. So Nebuchadnezzar just wanted to say, 
I am amazing with everything that he built. The Euphrates River flowed right into the middle of the city. The city was built around the Euphrates River, and then it was sectioned off so that the Euphrates River not only flowed in the middle of the city, but around as a moat. There were over 50 temples in the city to various gods, but the highest, the chief god of all of Babylon was Marduk. Marduk is the god that is referred to in verse 2 when it says the house of his god and brought the vessels into the treasure of his god. That's Marduk. Nabopolassar probably worshipped a god named Nebo. And Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah, you've got a great god, dad, but I'm actually going to worship a higher god, a better god, so that I can be better than my dad ever was. We know that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped Marduk because Nebuchadnezzar named his son Amel Marduk, which means man of Marduk, son of Marduk. So, historically, we know who Jehoiakim is, we know who Nebuchadnezzar is, we know where Babylon is, and we know that Babylon, after the Battle of Carchemish, like we looked at last week, came in and besieged Jerusalem. Okay, end of the history lesson. After this first deportation, which is found, by the way, if you want to write it down, 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, and 2 Chronicles 36, verses 5 through 7, describe this very account of the first deportation of Jerusalem, Babylon taking Jerusalem exiles away. And it would look like Israel's been defeated, Babylon has won, and Nebuchadnezzar is in control. Until you get to verse 2. Four amazing, profound, precious words. And the Lord gave. It looked like Nebuchadnezzar was the one doing this work, but it's God doing the work through Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God uses ordinary means, yes, but he uses them to orchestrate his perfect will. He's the one pulling all the strings behind the scenes. God is in control, even though that's not the way it would have looked to Judah or felt to Judah. It looked to Judah like Nebuchadnezzar had won, and more importantly, that Nebuchadnezzar's gods had won. Similar to what we would describe when we're watching the Olympics. You, you, you watch you know, figure skating and uh, somebody from some country falls and, and they were supposed to get the gold medal. They were supposed to win it all and they fall and they lose it. You don't typically just say they lost, but you say you know, uh, Russia lost or, or uh, China lost or whatever. The country that they are standing for, you say not only the individual lost the tournament, but the country lost as well. Uh, same thing is happening here. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar win, but his country and his gods won. Nebuchadnezzar is just simply saying, especially in verse 2, when he takes these vessels, these beautiful treasury vessels from the house of God, he's saying, my God's better than your God. Marduk has won. Marduk is greater than Yahweh. Go home to Babylon, and you would hear the Babylonians singing, praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow. He's better than Yahweh. And one last note about this, at the end of verse 2, he brings them into the land of Shinar. You, you didn't have to write that, Daniel. You didn't have to tell us that. We know where Babylon is. Why did you say the land of Shinar? 
Because if you remember, in Genesis chapter 11, land of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built. And Daniel wants you to be thinking right now of the Tower of Babel, which was built in Babylon as a direct offense to God, as a direct opposition to God. Let's build a tower high enough to get into heaven so we can find God, kill him, and be our own rulers and our own masters. So everything that Nebuchadnezzar stands for is direct opposition to God. Not only his name, not only what he's doing, not only how he's doing it, not only him stealing the vessels from the treasury temple, but also taking them to the land of Shinar. And it'd be very easy through all of this to say, God has lost. He's no longer in control. Maybe he's still there, but he's not in control. And Daniel's writing to say, God's always in control. God's always in charge. In fact, this section of scripture reminds me so much of 1 Samuel chapter 5. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. I love this story so much. The Philistines have conquered Israel and they've taken the ark of God. You remember they take the ark of the covenant. 1 Samuel chapter 5 verse 1, they bring it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and the Philistines take the ark of God and they take it to the house of Dagon, their ruler, their god. Very similar to Nebuchadnezzar taking beautiful gold vessels from the temple of Yahweh and putting them into the temple of Marduk and saying, Marduk, these are yours because you own Yahweh. And here in Philistia, the Philistines say, Yahweh, you bow down to Dagon. And I love this. Verse 3. When the, Ashdod, the Ashdodites arose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant in before God, or before their God, Dagon, and the next morning they find Dagon has fallen down on his face, worshiping the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if I'm a priest of Dagon at that point, I go, I'm out. I'm done. I don't like the way that this has happened. And I'm leaving Philistia for good. Not so. These priests, uh, they took Dagon. They set him in his place. Must have been a little tremor. Must have been a little earthquake last night. Something happened. He just fell down. Oh, well. Verse 4. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground. That's nothing new. But the head of Dagon and both of the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Again, what's the conversation with the priests of Dagon in that moment? Hmm, I think we should have learned the lesson yesterday. Maybe Yahweh was trying to tell us something, and Dagon's nobody, and he's fallen down, first worshiping the box, and now secondly, shattered in front of the glory of God and the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5, Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. That's when they put up the caution tape and said, don't even go in there, something bad's happening. That's what's happening in Daniel chapter 1. It looks like as Nebuchadnezzar is giving God's temple treasury gifts to Marduk, it looks like Yahweh is out of control. It looks like he has lost and Marduk has won. But that's not the case. And that's why Daniel says this is all of God. It would be very easy in those moments to say, We've lost, God's lost, God is no longer in power. It would also be very easy to ask in that moment, where is God? Maybe you don't just go straight to the, uh, the, the argument, okay, God's done, he's lost, he's no longer in power, but maybe it's just, I know you are in power, but where are you? God, where are you? 
Daniel wants us to know God was in charge the whole time. God was in charge. Can I ask you, what is going on in your life right now where it looks like and it feels like God is losing and the enemy is winning? What's going on in your life right now where it looks like and feels like God's not in control anymore or maybe he's just far off? Where is he? And it feels like evil is winning. The opponents of God are winning. Early Christians and uh, early church fathers in the time of Rome, when they were dating the death of their loved ones who were martyred for their faith in Jesus, they would begin by giving the appropriate date of their birth, and then when they got to the date of their martyrdom, when they got to the date of their death, they would affix the words right next to the date in the reign of Jesus Christ. So our beloved brothers and sisters died in the reign, not of Emperor Nero, but in the reign of Christ. He has never for one second given up the seat on his throne. He is in control. He is in charge. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, that's the only glue that holds our sanity intact. Sometimes that's the only way we can have sanity by, in the middle of our trials, trusting in the sovereignty of God. So, what are you going through right now, in this very moment, where you feel he's far off and out of control? Daniel's here to remind us. He's here to remind us. Brothers and sisters, he's here to tell you this morning, he is right there with you. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. In fact, what does Psalm 23 say? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because why? God is with us. Our God is with us. We see here in verse 1, an active sovereignty. Verse 1 and 2, an active sovereignty. Secondly, we see a faithful sovereignty. These are the aspects of God's sovereignty. Number one, it's active. It's not far off. It's not uh, an impersonal relationship with us. No, it's active. He's acting on his beautiful creation. And number two, it's a faithful sovereignty. This is a faithful sovereignty. My question is, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow Babylon to take Jerusalem into exile? And there's a one-word answer for that. And it's very clear in the Bible. Idolatry. Idolatry. This is all taking place. Verse 1 and 2 are taking place because God is faithful to his promises. Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 11, God had spelled out curses for disobediences, blessings for obedience. If you obey the Lord, you're blessed. If you disobey the Lord, you're cursed. In fact, turn over to Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah chapter 39. Just a, a small chapter. We can read the whole thing. Isaiah 39, verse 1. This is written, uh, the time period that this is happening is 701 B.C. So we're about 100 years removed from Daniel happening, 100 years before Daniel. This is Hezekiah. This is Hezekiah being king. So verse 2, Hezekiah was pleased. He showed this king of uh, Babylon, he showed a king of Babylon all of the treasures of his house, the silver, the gold, the spices, precious oil, the whole of his armory, and all that was found in the temple treasury. So everything that Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately going to take, Hezekiah is showing Nebuchadnezzar's predecessors. And there was nothing that 
uh, in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then, verse 3, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's exactly what's going to happen. This is the prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar taking away the captives, taking away even the, what the, the vessels in the treasury of the temple of God. So Hezekiah says, verse 8, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days, and then this will happen. God promised that this was going to happen. God promised 100 years before it happened that it was going to happen. God promised hundreds of years before that that if Israel continued in their idolatry, they would be led into exile. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 says, The whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So God even puts a time stamp on it to say they will be in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah 17 verses 24 through 27, God had said... Obey my word. If you obey my word, you follow what I've given for you to follow, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, Deuteronomy 28, you could read the whole chapter. Deuteronomy 28 is the blessings and the cursings. If you follow after idols, this will happen. So why, why are the Jews in Jerusalem taken into exile to Babylon? It's because they disobeyed God, because of their idolatry. And it's because God is faithful to his promise. He said, if you do this, this will happen. They did it, so this happened. Now, I want to make two qualifications here. We have to be very clear here, so I want to make two very distinct and specific qualifications. Number one, this does not mean that any suffering you go through is because of your sin. It is for them. We know for this specifically, this is because of their idolatry and God's faithfulness to his word. But that does not mean that every single suffering or trial that we go through is because of our sin. There are many cases in the Bible where you can see that the suffering someone goes through is just a product of a sinful world around you. Maybe it's trials designed by God for your greatest good in building your character, not because of discipline at all. So this is the case because of Judah's sin, but that does not mean suffering is always because of your sin. Okay, so that's first qualification. Second qualification... This does not mean that Judah fatalistically and deterministically was unable to get out of this prophecy. God gave them clearly an option. Would you like to obey or would you like to disobey? If you choose disobedience, here's the road you're going to go. If you choose obedience, here's the road you're going to go. Deuteronomy 28, choose life. It's up to you to choose. But if you do not, this is what's going to happen. But it's, it's up to you. Choose life. So God is not some fatalistic, mean-spirited, I want to send you into captivity. He's pleading with his people over and over and over again. When we study the book of Judges, this is really the book of Judges. Please repent. I won't destroy you now. Please repent. I should have destroyed you, but I'm not going to. Please repent. Grace after grace after grace after grace. These Israelites going into Babylon, it's not because... This is fatalistically determined, and there was no way they could get out of it. 
I think of Jesus' words during the Passion Week when he cried over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. If you had obeyed, the kingdom would be now. But you were not willing. So as we look at the sovereignty of God, it's easy to go into that hyper-understanding of the sovereignty of God and say, we have no place, we have no part, we have no responsibility. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Daniel's going to say. And that's not what verses 1 and 2 say for us today. So just two careful qualifications. God's faithfulness in his sovereignty and to his sovereignty does not, number one, mean fatalistically there's no way that we can obey God and have something change. And it doesn't mean that our suffering or our trials are always a result of our sin. So let's be careful there. What we do know is that God's faithfulness in his sovereignty is always a good thing. As one commentator says, the divine motive behind all of this dreadful humiliation in Daniel, all the suffering, all the loss was redemptive and altogether in harmony with God's promises given to the generation of Moses. Precisely because it was Yahweh who gave over the Jews to Nebuchadnezzar's power, then it was Yahweh whose hand could snatch them away from their foreign bondage. Since it was God in his faithful sovereignty allowing them to go, it's also God who can bring them back. Once they were ready to renew their covenant fellowship with him and carry out their part in his program of redemption. God is active in his sovereignty, number one. And number two, God is faithful in his sovereignty, even in his judgment. We tend to think of faithfulness, we sing, great is thy faithfulness. We tend to think of faithfulness in only positive terms. As in, God is faithful in only allowing good things to happen. But brothers and sisters, God is faithful in allowing bad things to happen, severe things to happen. God's faithfulness can also be a severe faithfulness. And here in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see God's severe faithfulness on display. But if the Lord is so diligent to be faithful to his promises of judgment, then he will treat his assurances of grace with the same exacting care. He's faithful to his promises of judgment, even a severe faithfulness. That means he'll be faithful to his promises of grace and his assurance of pardon. Finally, number three, we see in these two short verses that God's sovereignty is not only an active sovereignty, it's not only a faithful sovereignty, but number three, it's a purposeful sovereignty. It's a purposeful sovereignty. We like to say here at CBC, When God does one thing, he's doing a billion things. When God does one thing, there are so many things happening because of that one event that we couldn't even possibly fathom what's happening. We don't know all that God is doing behind the scenes here in Daniel chapter 1, and we probably won't know all that he's done until we get to heaven. That's one of the reasons why heaven needs to be eternity, because we need eternity to iron out all the threads of human history. Why did this happen? And it's all a domino effect. This happened because this happened because this happened. And how is it all bringing God glory? It's going to be beautiful in heaven to just have conversations. Imagine hanging out with Daniel and you're talking with him and you said, well, I learned at CBC that this was happening. And he goes, oh yes, that's absolutely what's happening. And that's all you could know from the Bible. But let me tell you what I know now that I've gotten to hang out with God and talk with him. Here's all the behind the scenes. That's what heaven is. It's going to be a beautiful behind the scenes of God's glory being seen and savored in the lives of his people in ways that we never even thought possible. So we can't know everything that's happening in Daniel here, but let's just meditate on a few options, a few things that we do know 
in God's purposeful sovereignty, meaning he's not just doing things like a chess game with pawns, sacrifice this, who cares about this. He's not just playing with us. He's purposeful with us. Number one, God's showing forth his sustaining grace. God is purposeful in his sovereignty in showing forth his sustaining grace. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, and I love this quote. We tend to see our trials as isolated nightmares. God, however, sees them from a different perspective. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace that he is writing in our lives. Maybe you are smack dab in the middle of a punctuation mark of trial. That sentence continues. Just wait and you'll see God's grace in and through that trial. God's also giving us hope for our trials. As he writes the book of Daniel, not only is he giving us a picture of his sustaining grace, he's also giving us hope in the midst of our trials. That's one of the purposes of what Daniel's going to be going through. John Calvin preached through the book of Daniel, and this is one of the first things that he told his congregation before he launched into his sermon series in Daniel. He said, quote, I have the very best occasion of showing you, beloved brethren, and in this mirror, how God proves the faith of his people in these days by various trials, and how with wonderful wisdom he has taken care to strengthen their minds by ancient examples, that they should never be weakened by the concussion of the severe storms or tempests, or at least if they should totter at all, that they should never finally fall away. Here's what he's saying in Patrick Vernacular. Guys, I have the privilege of showing you this amazing book because it will enable you to reach the end safely. That's what he's saying. And even if you begin to totter a little bit, God's going to keep you because of the preaching of this book. He goes on. For although the servants of God are required to run in a course impeded by many obstacles, yet whoever diligently reads this book will find in it whatever is needed by a voluntary and active runner to guide him from the starting point to the goal. Here then we observe as in a living picture that when God spares and even indulges the wicked for a time, he proves his servants like gold and silver so that we ought not to consider it a grievance to be thrown into the furnace of trial while men, while profane men enjoy the calmness of repose. Now Calvin says, we're going to go through trials. But the book of Daniel is written to give us hope in the midst of our trials. Because just like Daniel and his three friends, God's grace is going to be seen and savored in ways that would be impossible apart from the trials. Number three, God is providing for the good of the exiles themselves. One of the purposes of God allowing this trial to happen in the lives of his chosen people was to bring about the good of the exiles themselves. This seems so counterintuitive. I'm going to send you as exiles into Babylon for your own good. But that's exactly what God's doing. God's the one who takes them to Babylon. God's going to be with them in Babylon. God will use them in Babylon. One commentator says it this way. Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. His integrity and uncompromising character had far-reaching results. For when I see the wise men coming from the east, I think of the impact Daniel's theology must have had upon the Chaldeans' astrology. God gave him the influence that I believe led to the decree of Cyrus to send the people back to their land. Influence that led to the rebellion of the wall under Nehemiah into the reestablishing of the nation of Israel. Influence that eventually led the wise men to come to crown the king who was born in Bethlehem. 
Daniel was behind the scenes of the history of the Messiah as well as the Messiah's people. Daniel had unlimited influence for through his prophecy, he brings homage to the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who reigns forever. Daniel's going to be taken away in that first deportation in 605 BC. Fast forward 18 years to 586 BC when all of Jerusalem's going to be taken. Daniel's already going to have been there for 18 years. He's already going to have an influence and an impact. What we're going to read about and study about next week, Lord willing, will have already transpired. So he has already put his foot down on a certain issue, namely the eating of the meat that was sacrificed to the idols. He's going to put his foot down on that issue. He's going to test Marduk and put Yahweh on the, the, the battlefield with Marduk, and he's going to win, such that Nebuchadnezzar is going to see this guy and his God aren't that bad. So that when 18 years later... Daniel's entire people come over to Babylon. Daniel's already been placed in a position of power, just like Joseph was in Egypt. Joseph is to Egypt what Daniel is to Babylon, to the people of Israel. It would never have happened if Daniel had not been exiled. So in the moment, you think this is a terrible trial, but God's purposeful in using it. God has a plan for using it. Number four, a fourth meditation, a fourth purpose for this Exile, God's working in Judah's exile to strengthen Judah and weaken Babylon. This is, again, totally counterintuitive. What kind of a purpose is this? What kind of a God does this? I'm going to take you as exiles into a foreign land to strengthen you and to weaken the foreign land. It looks like Yahweh is losing. Almost throughout the entirety of this book, it looks like Yahweh is losing and his people are being defeated. But in fact... God is strengthening his people and defeating Babylon through this trial. Finally, number five, God is giving the exiles themselves hope. He gives us hope by listening to their testimony, but he's giving them hope through this trial in the midst of their own suffering. They wanted the kingdom to come, and God, through this, is going to say, the kingdom's not now, it's later, but it is still coming. One commentator says, we see a succession of kingdoms that conveyed to the Israelites that it was not yet time for the kingdom for which they had been waiting. Certainly this would have been a disappointing message for the exiles to hear, but the main significance is that the fact that in God's agenda, the mighty empires of the world come and go, and they will be superseded by the kingdom of God that will never be destroyed. And that would give reason for continued hope. That gives us, us reason. No matter who's president, no matter what governing authority reigns, no matter what world power is in control, God is on his throne over all of it. God is on his throne. God's sovereignty here is an active sovereignty. It's a faithful sovereignty. And it's a purposeful sovereignty. And though we can't fully unravel everything God's doing in the book of Daniel... We have the same promise that God has not forsaken us. And we have a promise given to us in Romans 8.28. You know it well. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This does not take away the pain of the trial. If you are in the midst of a trial, I'm not here saying you should not feel pain because it doesn't have a sense of purposelessness. I'm not saying that because there's a purpose, that means it's not painful. No, trials are always painful. But what the scriptures tell us is that they are never purposeless. They're always painful. They're never purposeless. God always has a purpose in what he's doing in your life. 
And I would say, especially in those moments when he is allowing trials and suffering, he draws near to us, he draws near to the brokenhearted, and he's with us. So, dear believer, Romans 8.28 is your promise to cling to. Brother and sister, you have the promise of God that his sovereignty is purposeful in your life in such a way that there is nothing that will happen in your life that will ever be wasted. Every tear that you've cried, every terrible night of sleep because of your anxiety over what's going on in your life, every suffering you've experienced, every nightmare that you've felt, that you've gone through, every single aspect of your life, God says not one aspect will be wasted. Not one trial is purposeless. God is always doing something in your life that will take an eternity to understand and see. So do you trust him as he works? And if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, to you I would say, first of all, I'm so glad you're here and I'm glad that you're hearing this message of a God that's bigger than any problem you could possibly have. But to you, I want to be very clear. The scriptures say that there is no wasted trial and no wasted amount of suffering, nothing wasted in the life of a believer. It does not give that promise to a non-believer. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you have not submitted to Christ, you have not followed him with all of your heart, you have not turned from sin to trust in Jesus, to cling to him, to love him more than anything in this world. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible would say your pain is purposeless. You do not have the promise that God's going to work in and through it because Romans 8.28 says it's only for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You don't have that promise. But today, if you would turn to Christ today, if you would follow Jesus today, if you would submit to him today, if you would give up your own autonomy and surrender to Jesus as king, then today, Jesus would time stamp your life and say, now, not only are you saved and everything moving forward will never be wasted, but everything you experience has brought you to this place of salvation, and I will redeem all of it. I will redeem all of it. Every single pain that you've experienced, God says, I'm going to redeem it. For believers, that's why we love grace, because grace takes the messes of our lives and redeems it, and before we know it, God's brought beauty out of ashes, and it makes no sense to us. We look, and it's a supernatural miracle. We are all trophies of God's amazing grace, so if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would plead with you, turn to Christ, trust in him, and see your life radically changed as you follow Jesus and no longer follow your own will, your own desires, and your own sin. So this morning, verses 1 and 2, God's sovereignty is active, faithful, and purposeful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? Well, I think there's a lot of application here. But I like T.G. Gill's hymn, We Come Unto Our Father's God. He speaks of the generation that's to come where we would plead with them, follow God. And it's very easy, like I said last week, it's very easy for Christians, and I don't know why we do this, but I have heard from more Christians in the last two years a very pessimistic outlook of life. Like everything's going bad and everything's going south and this is the worst time, and oh, the good old days, which again, I would say from last week, what are the good old days? 
There are no good old days until we get to heaven, right? That's the good old days. But until then, brothers and sisters, we should be the most optimistic people in the world as believers because for a Christian, it only ever gets better. And that might mean that someone might cut your head off because you love Jesus, but it's only ever going to get better. It's only ever going to get better. So, what do we do? Ye saints to come, take up the strain, the same sweet theme endeavor. Unbroken be the golden chain. Keep on the song forever. Safe in the same dear dwelling place. Rich with the same eternal grace. Bless the same boundless giver. Knowing that God is a sovereign God should lead us to bless his holy name. We should do as... Another hymn writer says, Rise up, O men and women of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. If he's in control of it all, I want to be on his team and serve him. Daniel would have been just the best bedtime reading available on the market for suffering servants of God. Verse 1 and 2. It looks like your suffering is purposeless. It's not. It looks like your enemies are in control. They're not. God's sovereign over it all. These four words, and the Lord gave, are a sentiment of comfort to bolster readers who find themselves waiting for the arrival of God's promises. They're a balm in the midst of disquieting surroundings when everything seems lost and when life seems not worth living. God is working his purposes out. He's not changed. God is always there. Wherever there is, he's always there. That's not the question. The only question for us this morning is, will you trust him? Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so rich and amazing. We love it so much. We are so grateful for the promises that we are given in and through just even these two short verses. And we ask that you and your grace would encourage us, comfort us, Enable us to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust you more. That is the anthem that we would sing this morning to you. How I've trust you and how I've seen your faithfulness proven o'er and o'er. But God, help me to trust you more. We say with that father of that demon-possessed child, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me, Lord. Grow our faith in you even now as we trust in our sovereign God. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and just respond with our voices in song. Tis so sweet to trust in Just to take him at his word Just to rest upon his arms Just to Sing, Jesus, 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 how I trust how I proved him over and over. Jesus, he precious oh, for grace to trust. Let's go to that, I think it's the last verse. I'm so glad I learned to trust him. Let's sing that one. I'm so glad I learned to trust him.
Precious Jesus, Savior, and I know Yes, he is. Will be with me and never leave or forsake us. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for to 